Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your Tome editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to bring you exclusive 2014 Gen Con D&D audio. This is coming to you, just like in previous years, unedited and uncut. We hope you enjoy it, and if you like the show, please visit our Tome Show sponsor, Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again. And if you visit their site, please tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Rudy, I have a big problem. I can't find a place to buy or sell gaming products. You know, I had that problem, too. Then I went to my DM. He told me about NobleKnight.com. Isn't that one of those internet stores? They are, but they're also a brick-and-mortar game store. Since using Noble Knight, I feel great! I can buy D&D and other tabletop RPG products from any edition, even stuff that's out of print. That does sound pretty great. Just pretty great. Get this, Noble Knight has all that at a discounted price. And with Noble Knight, I can even sell them my old gaming products I'm not using anymore. Oh, wow. I've got to check it out. You don't have to ask your DM if NobleKnight.com is right for you. We're pretty sure it is since you're listening to a podcast about the minutia of tabletop RPGs. People who use NobleKnight.com experience joy, having more money in their bank accounts, and lots of awesome gaming sessions. Seriously, why haven't you checked them out yet? Jeff Greiner uses Noble Knight, so should you. Well, my life is changed. It sure is, buddy. Soon, all our lives will be changed. And our... Yes, it's time for Magic 201, the advanced seminar on magic design, making magic better, magic in your Pathfinder games in particular, but hey, we'll talk other fantasy role-playing systems if you want to, we'll talk Ars Magica, we'll talk second edition Blade Slingers, we'll talk, uh, <laughs> we'll talk whatever, <laughs> All the we'll blade, talk deep magic. All the Blade Slingers you want. Yes. Which is zero. <laughs> oh, that's not fair. Uh, so let's have our panelists introduce themselves. Where are we? Uh, let's start down here. Start with me. All right. <laughs> I am not the Crypt Keeper. I'm Ben McFarland. Um, I've done uh, uh, some work with recently with Cobalt Press's Deep Magic. Um, I'm a regular freelancer for Ars Magica, which has the best magic system ever. <laughs> so that's my magic pedigree. <laughs> Uh, I'm Colin McComb. I have been in the industry for 20-something years. Uh, I got my start at TSR, went and worked at uh, where I helped develop uh, Birthright, Dragon Mountain, Planescape. Uh, I went to Interplay where I worked on Fallout 2 and Planescape Torment. Uh, and now I am the creative lead for Torment Ties of Numenera and running my own company, Three Pound Games, which just did the app for D-Magic. Yes. You have a much better oh, pedigree than I do. Also, I did uh, an essay in the Magic. Yes, you did, in the Cobalt Guide to Magic. Uh, I'm Wolfgang Bauer. I'm the publisher of Cobalt Press. I, like Colin, was hired on at TSR back in the Stone Age, uh, and since then <laughs> have, have published uh, things for, oh, yeah, Planescape, Alkadim, Pathfinder, Adventure Paths, and, uh, and many a fine thing for Midgard at Cobalt Press, including the Deep Magic hardcover. Yes, um, so I'm Amanda Hammond Coons. I was uh, an editor and developer on Deep Magic along with Wolfgang. Um, put about a year, 18 months into, of our lives into that project. Yeah. And um, I also am a freelancer for Paizo and I've done um, a wide variety of things for them and for Cobalt Press as well editing, writing, and developing. So uh, we've all done a bunch with magic, and it seems fantasy is our m- most common milieu. Um, the 
the voracious appetite of the audience for more magic and better magic and more interesting magic is pretty much insatiable, and publishers will keep putting out new magic systems and books of spells and the encyclopedias of magical things um, forever, uh, as long as there's interest. And I think this speaks to, you know, the power of magic in any fantasy system is it's the coolest effect in the game. Um, so, of course, we want more of it, right? The first time you cast Fireball is pretty awesome. The first Magic Missile is awesome. But it's hard to recapture um, that sense of, whoa, right? I can do that. I can do Kung Fu. I can cast Fireball. I... Uh, I think part of what we do when we expand on magic and improve magic is is reach back to our earliest memories as role players and say, I want to recapture lightning in a bottle, and maybe we never quite do, but but we sure keep trying, and it gets really interesting. That's why Deep Magic was such a success, and why every time I stand here at the booth at Gen Con and say, hey, there's 733 new Pathfinder spells in this book, certain heads just snap to the side, and you know someone who's walking down the hall says, what did he say? Uh, I want that. Um, it's super appealing. But how do we do it right, right? I mean, Amanda and I had to beat our heads against um, spells submitted by fans, spells submitted by professionals, things with a long track record, D&D and Pathfinder that have been in my home campaign for years, I try to meld all those things together. Um, I think the first step is, yeah, that was the initial design of this material. And I want to hear from our panel. Um, when it just comes down to get the first words on paper and do something cool with magic, right? Do something that adds to this enormous corpus of already existing stuff for Ars Magica or D&D or Pathfinder or, Pick your, or Numenera, frankly, because, oh, I don't know. What are those ciphers? Are those like magic? I think they're like magic. They're like magic items. Yeah, yeah so, um, you know... Uh, we may hand wave that they're technology we just don't understand, but frankly, they're doing a cool and wondrous thing, right? Right. So in each of those, those kind of systems, I want to hear from you, like, what do you do? Where do you start when you're saying, I want this to be better than average magic? Um, Colin? Uh, I'll start, sure. Uh, the first thing I look at is, can I duplicate this with an existing spell? Now, I, there's, you've got... And the answer is almost yes. Almost always, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's almost nothing out there that hasn't already been done. So the way that I want to approach it then is, well, how can I make this unique then? You know, I, everybody does a fireball. You know, there's flame tongue, there's flame whip, there's, you know, flame butt, I guess. Um, hey, fire's sexy. It is. As a man who stood on a video almost on fire, <laughs> that was pretty awesome. Fire is pretty magical. Well, I don't the think. Yes. <laughs> you know, but I. So, so the the very first thing I have to say is, how can I do something that's going to be different? You know, we've got balls, we've got whips, we've got spears, we've got strikes, we've got. You know, so the the first thing I want to ask is, you know, like I said, how do I make this different? And the way I approach that is. Can I develop an effect that other people haven't seen before? I, for instance, I don't know off the top of my head if we've ever summoned fire from inside an opponent. <laughs> That's called eating certain burritos. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Did you yank forth their inner flame? Exactly. Uh. And watch the flames spill out of their eyes and mouth. All right, now suddenly I've got an idea. 
And it's a pretty good idea because I think it was close to the Indiana Jones Nazi eyeball melting sequence. Kind of, but that was still an externally generated thing. This one is, you know, turning up the heat inside somebody. So now I'm like, okay, well, now that I've got that, I have to look up and see if anybody else has done this. Yep. That becomes tougher and tougher. I I do something similar. I like to find a single single focus for the effect. The mantra they've kind of beat into us for our magic uh, that's core to the system is one spell is one effect. Now that effect may be complex, but it served me very well in, in Pathfinder design as well, is that one spell, one effect. There are exceptions always, right? Guards and wards I yeah. think is one of those crazy like pick from the menu of effects, right? But those are the exceptions. To have a single spell with a single effect, then <clears throat> then start classifying it appropriately for the system. Yep. Amanda? I do something very similar. Um, I'm sort of an abstract person, so I'll often think of what do I want my spellcaster to do or what would be cool for my players to do against some of these new monsters. Because there's new monsters coming out all the time for Pathfinder. The back of every Adventure Path book has got a bestiary. We're up to bestiary four now. Um, So there's all kinds of monsters out there, and they're doing cool things, and the designers are trying to kill you in new ways. Oh, you know, I just got to jump in here because... (laughs) Uh, actually, bestiaries are sometimes really inspiring because people yes. have worked really hard on their spell-like abilities um, or their supernatural abilities for monsters. And it's often really entertaining to uh, retrofit a supernatural ability from a monster into a spell format. Yes. Right? Um, it means someone else has already done the mechanical work for you and you just have to decide on a name for the spell and... and, and a level and a level exactly and some classes but um it's a nice way to just put together something on the fly and it's thematically appropriate to that monster and it might be thematically appropriate to uh to an adventure that features that monster yeah so i think a lot of times sort of if you're gming sort of keeping current with you know what your players are using if you want to design something for your game or if you're a designer keeping current with what people are sort of playing in the industry and it varies you know everybody is still there's still people playing rise of the room wars i'm sure there's probably people in the room yep. playing things that are older than that um but so i sort of start out with an idea what do i want people to do for my spell and i think of you know what's a good visual component or or what's that that cool factor that you can't always put your finger on but something that you, you want to give your players to be able to use um, and then I go straight to the books and the, the SRD or Deep Magic and think, all right, well, who already sort of had kind of like this idea? Yeah. Um, or is there already a spell that already does this? And if so, I need to tweak what I want to do. Um, there's, uh, there's another angle to this that I think is worth... I, one approach I take is uh, what Bob Salvatore calls hiding to the side. Uh, you look for the niches that no one else is interested in. And by this, he usually means I want to put my next novel someplace in the realms that isn't totally crowded, right? So it's like I'm going to hide to the side over here because this forest hasn't been discussed. Well, in a similar way with magic, at least with advanced magic, I'm not talking about the core system stuff. Uh, often what I'm looking for is, well, which spellcasters aren't getting a lot of love? And the answer to that may be, um, might be druids, but they tend to get a lot of love. Uh, It might be like a new class, like the witch or the inquisitor or the oracle, right? Where like not a lot of people necessarily branch out beyond fighter, wizard, uh, spellcasting fighters, right? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) clerics and wizards. Um, But for deep magic, I wanted to write some spells, and so I assigned myself themes. And one I assigned myself was cantrips, 
mm-hmm. because those are hard to design, as it turns out. Uh, you can only do so much. And the other one I assigned myself was anti-paladins. Well, the moment I gave myself anti-paladins, it's like, well, yeah, they don't get a lot that just feels like an anti-paladin spell and feels evil and malevolent and, you know, puts the fear in players. And once I had the idea that a certain type of caster was involved, that helped me um, work back to effects, right? Like, Colin, you went from, hey, I want it to be fiery, and I went from, well, I want it to be an anti-paladin. Oh, and by the way, it's called the Doom of Fiery Death, and it means the anti-paladin is on fire. Oh, and he gets to pick someone else to be on fire, too. As long as the anti-paladin continues to be on fire, oh, that other person's on fire, too. Right? So it's a complex effect, and it feels kind of evil and nasty. And oh, by the way, how metal is that? The anti-paladin is on fire, and he, he wanted that. Uh, right? And mechanically, of course, it works because they have enough hit points to outlast you. Um, well, they can stay on fire longer than you can. That's because they're evil. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's sort of the crazy direction that, that may lead to an interesting effect at the table um, because it's hyper-focused on a particular experience and class um, and the effect needs to be tailored to that. So that was my 30 seconds on anti-paladins. Uh, let's talk about spell power for a little while. I mentioned cantrips. Oh, wait, wait. So, Oh, you want to go back? All right. I, I do. So so essentially, it sounds like what all of us are doing is finding an entry point to get in. Yes. And then sort of expanding our way through there, like water seeping through a cracks and then destroying everything. Mm-hmm. Well, much. I like okay. to think there's something created at the end, but well, yes. Okay. yes. But other than that, it's completely like water. That's, that's, how, that's how we blow out the earth to get the gold. <laughs> water. Yeah, you've got to find your own entry points. And I think every designer does this differently, right? You're going to do this for your home campaign, and maybe maybe your entry point is, hey, there's this arch wizard, and I want to give him unique spells. Or maybe it's, I've got a fae adventure coming, and I want, you know, fairy magic that the players don't know already. Often the, the motivation is, I want to surprise people. At least it is for me. Um, but yeah, find the entry point, and then wind up with something cool. Uh, I still want to get to power level, though, because, okay, you know, there, there's water that seeps in at a low cantripy level, and there's the tidal wave of ninth level that flattens the town, right? Um, how do you guys decide on power level if you've written something, you know, sometimes it's obvious, but if you're in that sort of mid-range of Pathfinder power around third level, fourth level spells, yeah, how do you decide? I and mean, this is honestly a difficult question. I don't think there's... It's a black art. Yeah, there's not a formula. There never has been a formula. Deep Magic has gotten a number of comments. We went round and round, Amanda, on on spell level with certain things that were submitted by backers, things that were submitted, frankly, by Paizo staffers, right? Like Jason Bullman's spells came in or Stephen Radley McFarlane's or something by Richard Pett, and we're like, okay, are these levels appropriate? Because even for a super pro... Sometimes they're so excited about writing the spell, and they're doing a good job, and mechanics are tight. But level can wiggle. It certainly can. And uh, like, like you said, you know, there's all kinds of different aspects to a spell. You can't always just look at, well, how much damage does this do? And That's oh, a start. Right. It's a start, but not all spells do damage. So, Is there a saving throw involved? Yeah. Is yeah, there a targeting role exactly. involved? Well, what we could throw some effect? numbers out there. I mean, there are Pathfinder formulas for saving throw values. There are 
There are comparable spells. This is what we did a lot, right? This is what I, I usually do when I don't Everything? <laughs> Everything. As a start point, you have yeah. those benchmark spells. D6 per level. Yeah. Well, level there three. you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll go through a, Actually, I use the SRD a lot because yep. it's got every Paizo published spell. It's got some of the third party spells, but for the most part, it's Paizo stuff. So it's like, okay, that's my baseline because that's what people are using and that's what everybody's expecting to see. Um, so if something is put at a level three, and, you know, it's like a D, D10 per level plus one per caster level. Obviously, that's way too high. But, you know, if it's something where it's, like, kind of questionable, I'll go look and I'll say, well, what are the other third-level spells doing? What are the other effects? Are they allowing saves? You know, um, do they have, do they uh, allow DR? Stuff like that. And if it's way off, usually I'll know just by looking at it. But if it's a little bit off, looking at the SRD will help a lot um, to say, okay, it is overpowered for a third. But look at these fourth-level spells, or sometimes... Actually, I, I notice a lot of things being off by multiples of two sometimes. Really? There's something... Yeah, weirdly, where something will be at a third, and it's like, well, really... It's really closer to these fifth-level spells. Right. Um, oh, well, people... Come on. Designers love to kind of power up their spells. At least I... They're always too powerful for the level. They're never too the, weak. They're never... Well, rarely sometimes. too weak. Sometimes. Rarely. That's because it's a lot of fun to obliterate your enemies. Right? <laughs> right. right? So you want to... And you want to be able to obliterate your enemies sooner. And I think... PCs get those spells. Then suddenly it's less fun. I mean, I think this is human nature, right? We love the power stuff. We love the big boomsticks. And and so this is why it's good to have a second party check your work, right? Because if you're doing it professionally, you're going to have an editor or developer or somebody looking over... I mean, Amanda or I or someone saying, yeah, that's not quite right. Let's... Back. But if you're doing it at home for your own entertainment and your own campaign, you don't want to blow up your campaign just because you got enthusiastic and said, D12s! D12s for damage! Or right? have your rules lawyer sit there and go, what? Right, and your rules lawyer saying, really? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that... Uh, yeah, really? right. yeah. No, that's okay. That's right. good. No, that sounds that. fine. That. We'll take that right over here. <laughs> uh, you know, that's... That's good uh, to to be aware of it and hand it off to someone who will double check. Um, so yeah, th- I think people overpower rather than underpower. <coughs> I, I think I call this school of design with comparisons though the real estate comp school. I don't know how many of you have bought a house at some point, but one of the things the agents will tell you is how does it compare to other houses in the neighborhood, and that is exactly what this design principle is. is how does your spell compare to other spells in the neighborhood? Um, and there can be legitimate differences of opinion about how it compares. Just as there are legitimate differences when you're selling real estate. No, really, that for two-car garage is worth an extra 20 grand. Really? Sure. Sure it is. You know, the popular, look at the school district. And this is the it same sort hardwood of... hardwood floors. Yeah, you get the same sort of... There's no saving throw. There's no saving throw. There's no saving throw against this house. Um, so there's room to wiggle and argue, just as there is uh, in those sorts of comps. But by and large, playtest is then your next stop, right? Um, if you hand it out to the rules lawyers and they all say, candy, 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 yay, you, you, may, you may have a sign that it's... <laughs> when they write it in pen. Yes, this was your shorthand for, gosh, we've given Ben a spell to review. And he said, he would say, I'm writing it in pen on my character sheet. I, I'm never giving this spell back. Don't touch it. It's so good. 
I'm second level. <laughs> I am unstoppable. <laughs> so yeah, the power the, the power curve is usually skewed high, and know that about design in general. Find someone to help you review this stuff, play test it. Um, the other thing I'd suggest for home campaigns is you don't have to put a new homebrewed spell out and never change it. Right, the first form with homebrew stuff is often wrong or incomplete or overpowered and set expectations at your table to say, okay, this is a test. This spell is still subject to warp flux. It's, you know, it's chaotic in its nature. It hasn't settled down yet. The arcane theory isn't perfect. Isn't baked. That's actually a really good way to get in to change these things. If you don't want to be like, okay, we're testing, you can just say this is a this is a testing spell clearly. It's in the in the wizard's testing spell book. So the effects can and will vary, and in fact, if you overuse it and abuse it, there's a chance that it might do some arcane backfire on you. Yep. So, although FYI, I want to talk about <laughs> yeah, I, I want to talk about backfire in particular. It's one of those advanced topics that we argued about during the deep magic development process. It's like if you give someone a mechanical benefit with a social handicap. Oh, I could talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I could too, honestly. I've done this, right? Or if you give someone a spell with a, a mechanical benefit, but um, but a like hit point or bleed damage or something, some pain. The, I talked about the paladin, anti-paladin who puts himself on fire, right? These spells are risky because you're trying to balance cost to the caster that they may be able to disregard, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or find a way to... Mitigate. Mitigate or, or redirect, right? You put the hit point damage on the spell, but then he goes and he talks to the cleric in the party and gets shield other, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So now that hit point damage that was supposed to be a detriment to the caster while he set himself on, you know, to the paladin when he's on fire, his evil priest cast shield other and, and the slaves, yep. right? So now <laughs> as he's burning to death... He's not really burning that badly. The, all of the you know slaves that you were supposed to be rescuing, and and the players figure those out. What did you do? I brought along this train of of uh, riding dogs, mm-hmm. and now while I'm on fire, all of the riding dogs you know slowly burst into flame behind me. Kind of. I, I want to think that's an example you just made up, but I fear not. <laughs> it's not. Saw, saw somebody trying to do that in organized play once. Yeah, I mean, people will find ways around these drawbacks, right? Like arcane backlash or. Or, uh, hit point damage or being on fire or saving throws the caster needs to make all seem really appealing, right, as a cost. I don't know. Did we, we, if, 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 if you can nail it down to specifically the caster somehow, you know, like say this is a this is a cost that you have to pay in your soul. And it that, can't that's be redirected. Right. It can't be mitigated. But I, that's the problem with developing something for a really complex system is the more stuff you throw into this complex system, the more things tend to fall apart. And we have a few of those in Deep Magic where it's like this damage cannot be avoided. You yeah. have to put that in there because we will have the people who will do the shield other or they'll have resist whatever. Or yep. I mean, it doesn't even need to be that complicated. They just need to have a cleric standing behind them with a readied heal of some kind, right? Right, right. So, they have to have that in mind when they're using it. They sure. They just do something to get away from it. Right. In some cases, that's okay because they're investing the resources yep. to make that work. Sure, the cleric's burning heals. Yeah, those riding dogs don't come cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm more... I'm more... I'm more, uh, more I guess, uh, suspicious of that, that cost. But it... it yeah. 
I don't know. It, it It's certainly one way to try and get it, but there are other players who will just, just kind of disregard. So you have to kind of figure out if that balance is the right cost. Yep. For going. And that does with the playtest for it, you know, as you run it through. Yep. Um, the other cost I like to sneak in is sort of, well, going back to my anti-paladin example, uh, I like to make spells evil and then power them up. And people disagree with me about this, but I've been doing it since 3.0 when Zeb Cook and I wrote uh, The Secret College of Necromancy for Green Ronin Games. And there were a bunch of evil spells in there that broke deliberately the damage guidelines or other guidelines on, you know, what's the power curve? Well, if you're an evil necromancer and you're pretty much a villain, then your power curve is better. Because chances are all you've got for friends is, you know, zombies and skeletons. But you're slaves. <laughs> who are your slaves. But, uh, but your spell book is truly awesome and the party will fear you. But, you know, some of the feedback I got even then was, these spells are too good. They're not on the same power curve. And I said, you are correct. They are not on the same power curve. They are not too good. They are too evil. Yes. And this goes back to that social cost, right? If you're willing to be an evil character, you get this. It's sort of a social cost. What I usually intend with that level of spell design is these are NPC spells and players don't get their hands on them. But but then Way of the Wicked came out and uh, evil campaigns became a thing. And you, you, can't count, yeah, you can't count on that. So... Um, Use with caution, I guess. But what do you guys think of giving NPCs a different power curve? Am I crazy to do this in my home game or do it in... I think just on action economy alone. Yeah. Very often you end up with... You try not to, but invariably you will end up at some point with a lone bad guy facing off against a larger party. (laughs) You don't want that to happen, right, when you're designing stuff, but it ends up that way. And if you can give him a bigger gun... Yeah. Then he's got at least a slight... I mean, he's... He's going to lose. Yes. Oh, well, yes. maybe not always, but he, usually he's going to lose. But if you can give him a bigger gun, then you're at least going to make a better story for the players because mm-hmm. there's going to be a moment where he, he hits them with that spell and they go, <coughs> oh. Yeah. Why is he rolling D12s for damage? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, suddenly, and then suddenly they're going to remember that. You know, it's going to become part of their, you know, their own group mythology of the... You know, sure, if group. there's a whole cult of necromancers and they fear they're going to see that again, well, now you've sort of injected a story element of these guys have magic... We, they have guns we don't have. Right. So, yeah, there's a plus there. And I agree with that as well as far as making particularly um, end battles where you've got one bad guy and then they've, you know, the PCs have sort of worked their way to that guy and he's the big boss... Making him more powerful than your average, you know, whatever level is supposed to be, 12 or something. Mm-hmm. I am totally cool with that um, because he's good at one thing or he's good at a set of one type of things. And, you know, that's pretty much all he's Well, you don't get to be a big do. bad guy without being special. Right, yeah. exactly. And breaking the rules. See, this is where I, I hedge because there's ways to make the big bad much nastier just by optimizing your, your villain build, right? Just... Yeah, give him specialists, or give him certain items, or I give him PC wealth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I give him PC most. wealth, and yeah. then it's like, well, he's got a wardrobe and an armory, and yes, yeah. But, but for Ars Magica, I'm not allowed to do that. Doing design magic design in Ars Magica, it's a specific part of the line. They say you cannot 
your, your magic that you make for any of the bad guys you make in our, in our, our magic supplements has to be the exact same magic that any player character can research and develop. Yeah. It can't be. I mean, and so you have to, in those cases, you know, then I have to start looking at, at interesting ways to do things in the system. <laughs> I'm sure you can find those, and I think we're going to get to those. But we're 30 minutes in, uh, and I think we could take a couple questions maybe, or at least see, all right, the, it's mostly a Pathfinder crowd. I want to be sure that it's mostly a Pathfinder crowd. It was in the description. This all applies to D&D, too. Uh, D&D players, maybe a couple, yes. Uh, Ars Magica players. Ars Magica players. Yeah. So how many of you are looking primarily to, like, homebrew something cool for your own game by show of hands? No, well, maybe one or two. How many of you are looking primarily to publish uh, in some form? Maybe. All right, self-publishing? No? Just Yeah. All right, so how many of you have already submitted professional work? You just, guys. Just thought this looked like a cool seminar. All right. It's totally You're fine. lost. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. Um, all right. That gives me a better sense of who's who. Yeah. So are, are you guys looking primarily for mechanics or discussion of fluff or mechanics? Oh, mechanics? this is the crunchy bunch. Let's, okay. let's talk crunch. All right. Fluff is transferable between different games. Mechanics do not always so No, it's really not. All right. Well, let's talk Pathfinder mechanics and maybe to some extent D&D mechanics and others, but um, that was sort of the largest show of hands. Uh, where to start? Well, we talked a little about level and balance, but just on a pure um, class distinction, I mean, we're mostly talking about wizard, sorcerer, cleric, druid, because that's the vast majority of casters. Um, I talked about designing for niches earlier. It's fun to do. People really love you for doing it, but the majority of the casters out there are standard arcane and divine casters, so that's where I would focus our discussion. Um, all right, where do we want to go with crunch? Um, One thing I would say is, and I get into a lot of discussion about this, Yeah, is don't... <laughs> Don't cross the street. I, myself, I, I, I look at it as a single kind of magic, and this is where it's coming. You know, it has sources, right? It's the, it's the wizard forcing, you know, this force of will creating the magic. The divine caster is channeling the power of the divine deity. It's magic. But within the system, there is a, a distinct class line, and that class line between arcane and divine tends to be who gets to give people their hit points back. Yes. Mm-hmm. Don't take that away from the cleric. I cannot count the number of times I've seen spell submissions in contests or in manuscripts where it's like, I'm a wizard who cures people. No, no, no you're not. not. Every, everybody <laughs> it's a rookie goes mistake. Over. Everybody goes over and they're like, but look at the bard, look at the bard. And like, the bard needs it. Okay, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love me a bard, but let's face it. He needs it, you know. Yes, he can sing for a while. I like playing him, but it helps him out. You know, it makes the class, it gives the class enough of a, it's the exception class. Your wizard who does necromancy but gets to heal people, 
Yeah. It's your. But you can justify it. You can, and I have argued that with my, you know, at my home game before. But when you're doing that design for other people, don't cross the line, man. Yeah. That's. that's And in the opposite direction, because you're stepping on toes, or. Well, because you can, if you can justify it, yes, no, I can justify. We can justify anything. I know designers. Like I've done it before with with. You know, a GM who's willing to discuss and said, okay, here's a trait that I've made that gives me access to cure light wounds. I pointed uh-huh. to the section in the in the core rule book that says a wizard can design any spell or a cleric can design any spell they want. They just have to work out the, you know, the DCs for spell design with their game master and you can have anything. And, and my argument is then, great, this spell's already play tested. It's already in the book. You don't need to figure out its power level, right? I just want the arcane version of Cure Serious Wounds. What's so wrong with that? <laughs> and they're like, but then it's like, but then what will Eric the Generic Cleric be doing over there? He's going to stand yeah. in his plate mail and look sad. He'll be a second rank fighter. Yeah. yeah, I think you yeah. don't want to take away sort of the class's purposeful being. You don't want to sort of encourage people to verge into that munchkin territory, which is always a concern. Um, but also, and we see this a lot with people who, um, backers and, and people who are just breaking into freelancing, they want to sort of give the cleric, wizard, whatever, class ability and disguise it as a spell. Oh, I hate that. And that's that. something for me that's like, no, no, no. There's a reason that that's a class ability. If you want that ability, you play that class. Yeah. Those, are, those are pen spells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. They had exactly. one of those in 3.5 that was, uh, it was like, it was called like Divine Insight or something. And it gave you, I think it was like plus two per character level to a sing- to a not not divine powers the warrior one. I think this this was only gave you plus two per level to a skill check. Any skill check, <laughs> you know. Were you untrained? That's okay. You've had divine insight, oh, and dear. now you know everything about knowledge oh, of planes for just a moment. Oh my! Oh, it was a great spell. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote it down in ink, didn't you? I bought second level pearls of power specifically <laughs> for that spell. We did not need a rogue after that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, when you have spells that do that. Then you start having people who are crafting items with those spells in it, and then you start having people who are buying those items, and then all of a sudden, why are you playing the druid? Or why are you playing the wizard when you might as well be playing the cleric? Because that's what you really want to play. Yep. So I think we have to keep that in mind as designers, and also as a GM, keep that in mind that if your players want to do that stuff, just play the cleric or just play the druid, whatever it is. Yeah, it's the easier way to go. I think not crossing the streams works the other way too, though. Uh, most cleric spells tend to be more narrow in focus, more protective. They have offensive spells, but they tend to be few in number and not as generally useful as wizard spells, right? Yeah, not the direct game. There's some. There's a few, but I mean, it's really not their thing. Their, their thing is more like the perfect tool, you know, protection from... Oh, level drain, paralysis, mm-hmm. all of those sorts of death wards um, are, are pure cleric territory. And, and they're all sort of narrowly designed spells, right? If you look at a lot of cleric spells, they're sort of meant to suit a particular purpose in a way that wizard spells are like, well, you can make a phantasmal force of anything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like a cleric version of phantasmal force would probably, if there were such a thing, would be more like, you know, phantasmal altar or phantasmal shrine. It's like yeah, a specific thing, very specific thing, which you can take shelter in the shrine and be 
whatever, right? It wouldn't be uh, totally amorphous and dependent on the caster's uh, cleverness to make that phantasmal force work. It would be more like, here is the special case where this will save your bacon. That's my thinking on, on how clerics kind of click. Um, all right, we're still sort of dancing around some of the crunch issues, but some of them are hard to do without, like, specific examples. Do we want to tear apart a specific spell? Yeah, is there a spell you guys want us to kind of take apart? Like, Sure. Mom, what do you think of in Pathfinder, first level spell, Infernal Healing? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a fun one. Mm-hmm. I, I, right, that's yeah. one of those ones that's crossing the line, right? Yeah. It and, is, and it's got a social component to it. Yeah, because right? it's, it's you supposed know. to anyway. It's supposed to. <laughs> it's supposed it's to. totally abusable. Well, it's yeah. one of those. Oh no, I so I radiate evil for a little while. Big deal. You know, these guys will vouch for me. I honestly, I'm not. Send the That's why I brought these other murder hobos with me. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue it's a poorly designed spell, but. And I'm okay it's usually awesome with it because then it's I will, awesome if you're a player. But, but no, but see then it, it, what what those social thing those social component costs then basically get paid onto the GM, right? It's mm-hmm. if you're going to be using infernal healing like that, and you're going to cross the line like that. Then it's then incumbent upon the GM to be like, you've just cast infernal healing a bunch of times, and now you know when you went in to try and get your room at the inn, the innkeeper was like, no. You know, I, mm-hmm. you've got kind of... The got, horns put me off. you got the stinky <laughs> evil going on you. I don't need your customer type here. And, you know, it's you've got to almost kind of go a little beyond that to make sure that the, the social cost that doesn't really apply as well in, say, the middle of combat has to be carried forward to a certain part. And that can be tough to do as a GM. Yeah, I can point out we're sitting under a train. Yeah, no. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's the infernal bombardment again. <laughs> we had this earlier. So, so yeah, fantastical train. Where, where, where I would go with that is, I would say that's a fine spell for a homebrew campaign where your GM is actually willing to enforce it. But if you're stepping it out into a broader area, organized play, organized yeah. play, or con play, or something where people are not necessarily into the same kinds of social play that you are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and just assuming. Um, and, and well, in the, but I, yeah. if people if people are not willing to play the social spell in this role-playing game, then, you know, it, it suddenly becomes very, very broken. And it's tough to an organized play because you have limits on your word count. And so things like putting in the the NPC's reaction to infernal healing, right, is really tough to get into that part. So it's really a tough spell in that regard um, because, you, you know, it... it it, there's not as much within the organized adventure to dedicate to that. Um, like you said, it, it ends up really only having the chance to, to shine, at least that cost to shine, when you're, you're playing home campaign. Right. And so the, the, the primary things that I think you need to consider when you're doing the mechanics are, are the power level. Uh, the social component. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Be careful whether, with those. Yeah, whether you're crossing the stream or not, you know, does, is this duplicated or duplicable by some other class? Yep. Um, what other pitfalls are there? The multiple menu effect. Yeah. Oh, yes. The one I hated yeah. from, or I should say, is, uh, the one that exemplifies this to me is from second edition. 
and it was the chromatic orb. I love that spell. <laughs> was that a pen spell for you? Uh, pretty much. Chromatic orb, right? Yeah, you start out at level, first level, and it's yellow, and it, it causes like some damage. And then the second level, it was orange, and it either did damage or it did like uh, a slow or paralysis effect. Until the time, like your caster was like seventh level, and he had the choice of you know the whole Roy G. Biv. And he was yes. gonna, death effects. Right. You're like, what level is this spell? Well, it's written down as a first level spell. Because <laughs> I am level seven, I now throw the violet orb of, you know, target immolation. Yeah. He turns into a statue and then falls apart. You know? <laughs> you know? And that's, that's the problem is that the scale effect, the scale effect of the spell is, is something you've got to, I think, you, wow. Really want to make sure earthquake. It's the only way to be sure they're in orbit. <laughs> but uh, you know, is that trying to avoid the effect that that not only scales up in level, but then branches out in effect at level. They see prismatic ray, or they see prismatic uh, uh, sphere. Sphere. Thank you. Words. <laughs> And, and they try to apply that same concept to a, a lower level spell. I mean, those guys are high, right? Prismatic spray, prismatic yeah. sphere. Seven. We're eight. at high level. I'm not expecting, you know, just some shards of earth to tear up my enemies at that level. I'm looking for... Dropping some, a mountain on their head. Right. Um, so at lower levels, avoiding that tree of effects. And, and yet, you, you say the scaling effect and the tree effect and... and Chromatic orb is totally something to write in pen on your character sheet. But then we have mythic magic. Okay. That, right? That changes the ballgame. Which is like, okay, here's your spell, and here's the augmented version, the mythic version, the superior version of Fireball, which cuts through fire resistance or, you know, sure. all of these things. Um, and certainly we have some mythic magic in, in deep magic. We did a 40 of those. Stephen Radney 50. Mc, 50? Yeah. Yep. Stephen Radney McFarland wrote the mythic portion of deep magic which yes. was pretty sweet um, but every one of those is a scaling level up improvement over the standard spell yes. um, and it's a lot of fun but that's also incumbent with the with the subsystem the mythic subsystem right yeah and a lot of times I'm not going to be seeing just Joe wizard pulling off you know the mythic versions all the time he's got to have that mythic pool sure he's got to have mythic that. power Yep. And that's and, and even if it's a temporary, you know, infusion of mythic power, man, they they are intent on getting to us down. Here. <laughs> um, even if it's a temporary pool of that mythic power, then it's a resource. They've got a husband and work out. I think it's it's for the more like all the time use where that tree effect can get can get you in trouble. It, it, it is certainly a place it can get you in trouble, I think any game master who says I'm putting mythic in my campaign knows he's powering up the game. Yeah. But you know that going in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's on the tin. Yeah. And then there's all that fairly interesting way that where you actually use a higher slot to get those. Yes. If you bump it up to a higher spell slot, right. then my objection goes away. Right. Ooh, and so does the train. <laughs> <laughs> Question in the back. Yeah. Uh, you were asking earlier about spells to go over. This might be a really big one, but uh, there's two parts of it that I have questions about. Wish. Oh, that's a whole panel. <laughs> but all right, go on. Uh, Wish. So the, the spell is intentionally very open ended. Almost to the point, it seems like the GM is supposed to decide, you know, where do I, where do I draw the line? But from the perspective of the, the designers, where do you typically expect GMs to draw the line of 
which can't do more than, you know, than X. And uh, the other question I had on which is, how much of a multi-paw effect do you expect GMs to apply to it? Like, if someone reasonably does say, you know, I do blah, 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 my wish is their sentence with as I intended. Uh, <laughs> oh, you have lawyer friends. <laughs> I, I look at who's giving the wish. You know? If it's a genie, it's different than if it's a Tao. But if you're casting if a spell, a, though, if you're and just, it's just a sure. drawn from within your If you're doing it yourself, power, yeah. that's another thing, right? You'd have to assume a little less hostility. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also talks to the other underlying nature of magic within your campaign, right? If you're casting it, it does the magic follow very specific rules, or does the magic just know? Like, does the magic do by default as intended, or does the magic do specifically as, you know, kind of as designed? Yeah, I mean, that could even speak as to the source of the magic, you know? Is it like, are you drawing from some mana pool from beyond the edge of the universe? Is it a Lovecraftian pulling things in from... You know, alternate dimensions. Is it's it uh, pure force of will? Yeah, bending you know, space and time exactly. by physical, mental you know, prowess. Are you, are you summoning? Are you summoning creatures from beyond the planes to uh, to you know then carry out your wishes? I mean, it all depends on what the source of your specific power is. I think. Yeah, and so I think what we're all driving at is wishes are a GM call yeah. mm-hmm. and as a designer my intent would be yeah it doesn't do anything bigger than than I don't want it to break my campaign right, right? I, I don't want, want, want to break to anyone's campaign yeah it should be wild and wahoo and open ended because if you give it too much monkey's paw backlash you breed resentment among your players yeah it becomes a worthless spell right? it becomes mm-hmm. a worthless spell they, they resent you as a game master if you just let it be abused, then suddenly everybody's got then your game's over. Yeah, yeah you're right. running around with your quiver of javelins of lightning, and you're like, "Hey, Zeus, eat it!" Yeah, <laughs> and this is why there's been so much ink spilled on it. Is it is the ultimate open-ended, open to interpretation uh, spell, and it's been there from the beginning. Pretty close. I don't think it's in the three little booklets. No. But um, but it certainly wasn't. Man, I could yeah, and probably yeah, we could spill a lot of ink on that I, sort of topic. I, mean, I remember back in the first edition days, there were there were whole, I mean, just flame wars and flame wars and, and, and like private, like I don't want to say private, but things that like roamed the old news groups of here are the things that I can allow wishes, you know, this is the set of things that a wish can do if they come from these kinds of sources. And these, and I've seen that before. Yep. I remember that. And it was like, oh, and then later on it was like, well, if you get a wish, it takes three wishes to bump your stat up by one. You know, the real problem with wish is that we keep trying to put it in a box and it's the one magic spell that want, doesn't want to be put in a box because we usually have numbers and checklists and saving throws and a really tight set of constraints and design around a spell because we want it to be a repeatable experience tactically on the tabletop. And Wish is that one magic spell that says, no, screw you, I'm magic, right? Mm -hmm. You can do anything. It is open. And, And gamers as a breed are somewhat suspicious of this or are looking for the angle in this, right? Uh, as a game master, you're just like, anything? I don't trust it. 
And as a player, you're just like, what's my angle? How do we make... Let's start writing things down, guys, right? Mm-hmm. How many times have you seen the wish casting? Like, you've got to write it all down because it's like three paragraphs. And... And it ends with as I intended. And it ends with as I intended, exactly. And I, mean, I think it's wonderful that it's so wide open, but I trust the game masters to to sort of take that as their territory and say, here's how I do it. I'm going to do it by source. I'm going to do it by a list. I'm going to do it by seat of the pants. And it's like, what do I want to allow in my campaign? Right? Everybody's going to have a different approach depending on their game mastering style. Um but it's sort of a test of both player munchkinism and uh, GM ability to manage your campaign. It's a it's a skill check for game masters. It's it's a designer trust issue too. I and your your question was as designers, how do we approach it? And it's just you know, I and for the for the things that go outside of the systems, essentially the thing that says, okay, this is the thing that just is going to break the system. Breaks the system if you yeah. let it. At that point, we have to say. You know what, man? It's your game. Good luck. Because ultimately it is your game. And if you say, I don't want that guy to get wish. I'm not going to hand out wishes like candy. Mm -hmm. Then fine. Make the wish a one. Disallow the spell. uh, Yeah, or say it's, you know, casters can cast it once in their lifetime. All right. You've just house ruled it into an event, right? I've been an archmage for like six months. Campaign's wrapping up. Orcus is coming over the horizon. I guess it's time. I'm going to think about my wish, my one wish, right? And so you've house ruled it into, yeah, a bucket item. Yeah, a bucket item, and it just became even cooler because, like, well, oh man, that didn't work out the way I thought. Or yes, that one wish I had that really made the campaign, and people will talk about it. What would you do about dueling wishes? I mean, you're like, okay, Orcus is coming over the horizon. (laughs) All right, I wish that all demon incursions into this plane be forever sealed. As okay. I intended. As I intended. And now there's all these demons outside the plane going, yeah, well, screw you. I've got wish every day. <laughs> I wish to get back in. I mean, As I intended. As, <laughs> and I have dibs. Uh, you know, that would be a great moment as a game master to have Orcus counter the wish. And maybe it would be a, a pants-wetting moment for the player characters if you knew the wish was coming. Uh, or maybe it would be a great impromptu, improv sort of moment as a game master where you say, well, you guys totally forgot, right? Mm-hmm. That ain't going to work. And and that moment of pants-wetting terror may make the, uh, the final <laughs> encounter way more memorable because Orcus just says no. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's wide open. But what makes it more entertaining? Uh, the, the problem is once you have wish in the campaign, it, it's hard to stop. Everybody starts to get those ideas, and they're like, I could do that. I have an idea. I have yeah. an idea. I'll quit anytime I want. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't there a, a requirement on Wish, like, in first edition, it aged you? Yeah, one year. By a year. That was a nice sort of rate limiter. Yeah, in, in, in haste. Unless you're an elf. Unless you're an elf. See, damn it, elves. Elves. <laughs> elves. That's right. There was a, another cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like somebody had planned that to work to get. Yeah, yeah but you know, in first edition, how old were we? Twelve. If yeah. If there's anybody in this room who was older than say twenty when first edition came out, and if you were yeah anything younger than twenty, you're probably like screw the level caps. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> totally. 
Oh, man, Wish is a, is a panel unto itself. I'm glad for that question. Thank you. Um, all right, we're down to like five minutes here. Uh, I want to get some concluding thoughts uh, from everyone. Um, those of you who came in late, if you're interested, we, we have more discussion like this and projects and products from Cobalt Press on our mailing list over here you could sign up for. Um, already on it, already on it. Got it covered. Very good. Got to get tickets. Sorry, they do collect tickets. And somebody came in and counted. Oh, that's fine. Are they collecting tickets this year? They collect tickets for panels every time, but I, I forget half the time. I, was to, say, I can't remember the last time I had to give a ticket for a panel. <laughs> well, they usually come and they do a head count. Oh, okay. And I'm like, okay. No, they always let people in, but I don't know why. I've seen standing room, you know. Yeah, especially the standing room panels, they like to know. Well, because, you know, we can skate away with the generics. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah you want to go with generics. That's right. I'm going to go play some games with these free tickets. Yeah. It's an important factor. I got questions on all the panels. Yeah. Nice try. All right. Excellent. All right. So final wrap up, folks. Um, concluding thoughts. If we had one tip to help uh, people design or implement or publish uh, better, more interesting, richer, more vibrant, crunchier, more wish-fulfilling magic. Wow. What? <laughs> All of those things. I'm I keeping a list. We've got to have standards. Did you say uh, balanced? Oh, yeah. Did I say balanced. that? Oh, crap. You know, I'm the guy who gives anti-paladins bennies, so maybe balanced is not on my list as much. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, what would our, what would our one, one tip be to like make your spells awesome? Um, I think for me, uh, it's probably if you're designing along a theme, which was a lot of things that we did for Deep Magic, a lot of times um, Paizo will, will have freelancers do that as well. Um, pick something that you are really into, that you think is awesome. Um, don't necessarily do something that you want to give your characters, because then that's when you run into stuff that's really overpowered, but uh, yeah. we'll be writing in pen on character sheet. But um, be really excited about your idea and think about how it's going to play at the table. Think about what the, the visual effect is going to be when you cast that spell. Visuals um, are important. Yeah, yeah. Don't be so focused on, oh, let's make sure that this does enough damage that it should be the level that it should be. And, you know, we have to think about all of the little elements. That stuff's important. But when you're first getting started, really think about what do you want to do? What do you want the spell to, to look like? What do you want it to smell like? What do you want it to feel like? Um, what do you want uh, your casters to be able to make the other characters that you're playing with say? What do you what do you want the, the players at the table to react when you cast the spell? Um, and I think that if you really have that passion for the magic, that um, the mechanic stuff's really important, but that's what's going to make something that stands it's out. going to make it memorable. Yes. I will echo that and, and go back to that cantrips thing I, I mentioned briefly earlier. My favorite cantrip of the dozen or 20 I did for Deep Magic was one called Slap. <laughs> and it's silly. And I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> because it's very much what it sounds like, right? Somebody from across the room can just <laughs> smack somebody else. Which I think is both hilarious and probably subject to abuse <laughs> and uh, can lead to social situations and pure chaos 
and distract a guard, and it has a million uses, right? And it right? is non-lethal, so it's not like... And it's not like one point of non-lethal damage yeah. or something. It's so minimal for damage, and it's fun. Is it distracting? It is. Oh, so the Lich is casting a spell? Uh, no, it doesn't It doesn't cause a concentration check. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm dead, don't take no. Yeah, they don't take non-lethal anyway. So, but yeah, well, fuck it. <laughs> thanks, guys. No, sorry, <laughs> I ruined your use. But you know, okay, say it's not an undead. It's an arch wizard across the okay. But arch wizard who happens to be very pale and thin. He's sort of sort of actually just a head on a pillow. That's why he became lich. But I mean, it was just basically it was a verb. So my piece of advice is pick good verbs, right? Pick an effect, um, and if you can. Think of it as I can come up with a dozen ways to use this spell for myself as a game master, and I can think of a dozen ways that this spell is going to crack up or get that woohoo moment at the table. Then you're on to something. If it's just a saving throw and d6 damage, you, know, you can do better. Uh, for me, one of the one of the things that I was told to concentrate on for for torment is that. We need to not just think about the story effect, but about the player experience. So it's not just about, you know, okay, here's what I want to do. It's how are the players who are coming to this thing from so many disparate disparate places, how are they going to experience this thing? And if you're going to design a spell, then that's what you need to focus on. You know, is this the thing that's, these, like these guys are saying, is going to make people say, yeah, that's an awesome thing, or, eh. I okay, took some well, damage. Yes, if I, if I have to do it, then I will. Um, don't worry about your power level. If you're doing something... Oh, my God, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, seriously, don't worry about the power level, because if you're doing something in-house, you can rule that back down. Yes. And if you're doing something professionally, the Someone developer... Someone else will rule it down de- for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. The developer will say, that's too much, and rule it back down. So or kick it up. Exactly. Well, yeah, they're going to kick it up, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> take the level to where they think it should be. Down. <laughs> it is the way the world trends. Uh, for, what I would say is is give it a cool name, not uh, not like so and so's whatever, but give it a spell. Give the spell a cool name, you know, an interesting name. This is somebody's research and development over time that they then created and then spread out into the world, and you know, became popular enough to to be something that other wizards wanted to cast. Fireball's so boring. You know? That's a good name. It's, Whereas right. Tasha's uncontrollable hideous laughter. Right. That's a Uncontro- name. Yeah, uncontrollable hideous laughter. There's a name. Like I don't like putting the name on it so much, but I, I can see why. But like Fireball or Ball of Abysmal Flame, <laughs> right? Which one of those do you want to go Arduin. cast? That's right. Oh, yeah. Go read Arduin Grimoire sometime for spell names. They all sound awesome. Exactly. And don't actually use any of the mechanics, but the spell <laughs> names That's what I'm saying. Because like, awesome. that can also... You know, that gives you the vibe. You get a good name. All right. We went all the way back to the thing at the top of the spell stat block. That's our take on it. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your attention. We had a great time with Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, please consider using our Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links found on the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Thanks again, and keep gaming.